The episode never aired. It was 1971, and Dick Cavett had invited Jerome Rodale, the founder of a publishing empire dedicated to health and longevity, invited him in for an interview because Rodale was the guru of organic food. At 72 years of age, Mr. Rodale took his chair next to Mr. Cavett and proclaimed with confidence that he would live to be 100 years old. And then he made a snoring sound, and then he died during the interview. The episode never aired. According to an article in the New York Times, the field of anti-aging and longevity is one in which researchers are, are trying to avoid death or postpone it by conducting experiments on themselves and taking up new, new options to try to explore how we can live the fullest, longest life. Uh, some are taking multi-day fasts, others are dosing themselves with the diabetes drug metformin, others are drinking milk that's laced with high doses of a, a particular type of B vitamin that defends against aging. The results are less than anyone would hope. In the 1930s, the nutritionist Clive McKay designed a low-calorie diet for his lab rats that enabled them to, to have all the nutrition they needed, but they were able to live to, in human terms, 120 or 130 years old. And so Dr. McKay applied the same theories to himself, nibbling on small morsels of his own densely nutritious food, and he didn't make it to 130. He had a stroke and died at 69, even though he was a very trim and athletic corpse. Later, researcher Roy Walford stuck to a 1,600-calorie-a-day diet. In the 1980s, he wrote the, the bestseller, 120-year diet. And then he followed that up with beyond the 120-year diet. And he became a cult figure to thousands of cronies, that's short for calorie restricted with optimal nutrition who hoped to live past 100, he made it to 79. Some of the biggest names in dieting and agriculture and preventative medicine have died at very young ages. The wild foods enthusiast Ewell Gibbons was far ahead of his time in his advocacy of a diverse plant-based diet, but he died at 64 of an aortic aneurysm. Uh, the nutritionist Adele Davis helped to wake millions of people up to the danger of refined foods like simple carbohydrates and white bread and white rice, but she died of cancer at 70. Nathan Patikin, one of the foremost champions of low-fat diets, died at 69, the same age as Dr. Robert Atkins, who believed in the opposite regimen, low-carb. We work really hard to push off death. I sometimes say it's the last thing I want to do. And yet it always catches up with us. The human death rate remains 100%. Christians this day, this Easter, on every continent, they're followers of Jesus who are celebrating something that those earliest followers of Jesus believed as a, as a firm conviction that they were willing to go to their death to stand by, that, that this Jewish itinerant rabbi Jesus of Nazareth died a death in order to make peace between humanity and God who were in conflict and to bring us together by paying the price of that conflict. 
And on the third day, the early Christians were confident that Jesus, who had been truly and genuinely dead, not just mostly dead, but real thing, Roman executioners were good at their job. They didn't leave people mostly dead. But he actually died. And then on the third day, on Sunday morning, he arose, not just resuscitated, but transformed into a resurrected being fitted for eternity. They believe that Jesus did this and that death, therefore, does not get the last word, that it's not the last thing we do in this life. Yet when those early followers of Jesus told others what had happened, when they recounted the historical narrative that they had received of, 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 of the first witnesses of the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth, there was a problem. There was a problem with the witnesses to the res resurrection of Jesus. And that's what we're going to talk about today. It's the gospel according to St. Luke, the 24th chapter, beginning in the first verse. This is God's gospel. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. And they found the stone rolled away uh, from the tomb. But, but when they, they entered, they didn't find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. And in their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. Then they remembered his words. And when they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all of the others. It was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the others with them who told them this to the apostles. But they didn't believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb and Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves, and he went away, wondering to himself what had happened. But now, that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, Are you only a visitor to Jerusalem and do not know the things that have happened here in these days? What things, he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people, the chief priest. And our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it's the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our own companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but, but him they did not see. What do we see here? 
first of all, we see the problem with the witnesses of the resurrected Jesus. The problem with the witnesses were that they were women and not males. Even the apostles didn't believe them because they were women and they were speaking nonsense, they said. Why was this a problem? I mean, you have to understand, put yourself in the context of first century Palestine under Roman occupation, the, the first century Jewish historian uh, Josephus in his Antiquities, uh, book four, uh, talks about legal practices within a court of law within first century Judaism. He writes, let not a single witness be credited, but three or two at least. And those such whose testimony is confirmed by their good lives, but let not the testimony of women be admitted on account of the levity and boldness of their sex. And this wasn't just a Jewish pattern in first century Palestine, it was also a Roman pattern. Uh, the Roman pagan apologist Celsus, uh, a couple centuries later, would make quite an issue of the fact that the first witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus were women and not men. And women, he said, were not trustworthy. Women were hysterical. They're, they didn't count when it comes to assessing what's actually true. He assumed them to be unreliable, and many of his readers would have agreed. Female witnesses were a major problem. In antiquity, women were marginalized. Their testimony wasn't considered credible within the patriarchal structures of classical civilization. And so the problem of the witnesses in those first centuries was a big obstacle, humanly speaking, to a testimony about Jesus. And yet, having the first people entrusted with the message of Jesus be female is exactly the kind of thing we should come to expect from Jesus. Jesus never approached things through the grid and the values and the assumptions of human civilization or society. You know, if Jesus were doing a healing ministry today, we would go about it the way that, that, that we in the secular West would go about it. We'd first find out, you know, we'd take applications of who wants a healing from Jesus, and we'd realize he's limited in availability, so we'd get time slots, and then we'd take applications and we'd evaluate them based upon some criteria. Is this person rich? Is they famous? Are they a good person? Have they really contributed? Will others notice that this happens? Uh, you know, we would want to find those who are properly worthy of a healing from Jesus. And that's not how Jesus does it. He just goes up to everybody and starts treating them with compassion and mercy and healing their diseases. He chose all the wrong people to be part of his kingdom from a worldly perspective. He chose a prostitute and he loved on her so much that she poured out everything she had upon Jesus and followed him. He chose a crooked tax collector named Levi or Matthew, who, who was a Roman collaborator. He was basically a mafia boss, and he made him an apostle. He wrote a gospel about Jesus. It's in our Bible. Jesus favored the poor. He defended a woman who was caught in adultery and preparing to be stoned to death, and he defended her and drove off her attackers. He praised the faith of a presumably pagan Roman centurion while excoriating the pastors and priests of Israel for being a bunch of self-righteous religious hypocrites. He chose the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. He, he turned the values of antiquity, including the values of, of ancient Judaism, on their head. Indeed, we know of these first witnesses to the resurrection by name. We read here that it was Mary Magdalene whose name is mentioned 12 times in the Gospels, more than almost every other apostle. 
Uh, she was even called the Apostle to the Apostles because so frequently was she named. She was one of the three women who financially supported Jesus. She was a wealthy woman, supported him out of her own means, according to Luke chapter 8. Another of those was Joanna, and she is here. Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them. You know, the God of the Bible knows his people by name. He knows you by name. I don't know how he can do that with like seven trillion people. Seven billion people, sorry. Or probably trillions throughout history. But he knows his people by name. It's Mary and Joanna and the other Mary. Uh, You know, these categories of male and female, while still part of our human makeup, make a lot less difference than they did before Jesus. Because in Jesus, all these other human categories become secondary or tertiary at best. It shouldn't surprise us that Jesus entrusted the gospel message of the resurrection first to a group of women in first century Palestine who would become the very first of the evangelists, the very first witnesses to the reality that Jesus is not dead, but he has risen. Jesus gave first century women a voice that they did not otherwise have in antiquity, uh, you know, you look at the apostles here, the, the disciples, Cleopas, and, and he's like, well, our, our women, you know, amazed us. They went and they said they saw, the, he wasn't there and they said they saw these angels, but, you know, when we went and checked, we didn't really see all that. It was just an empty tomb. Uh, you know, and, and they're obviously not quite buying what their sisters in Jesus are telling them. But it was the women's voice that came first and only secondly, the men. Look at the leaders in Paul's epistle, his letter to the Romans. In the last chapter, chapter 16, he he greets just dozens of Christian leaders in Rome, and 40% of them are female. Um, Look at how Priscilla was the lead instructor for the apostle Apollos. The fact that it's Aquila and Priscilla, you know, tells us that she was probably the leader, according to scholars. Look at how Philip's daughters prophesied in in the ancient church. Look at how Jesus' ministry was funded largely through the financial support of three Jewish women of independent means, women recognized by name in the Gospels and recognized by name here. Jesus gave women a voice that they had been denied. He chose women to be the first Christians to carry the message of the resurrection of Jesus, friends, and we cannot overstate the significance of the fact that Jesus Christ, upon his resurrection, chose as the very first evangelists women instead of men. But this is also how we can assess the truthfulness of the resurrection accounts. Because were the early Christian leaders making up an account of the resurrection of Jesus, they certainly would have made it so that Jesus was discovered by very high, very respected males. The fact that they say that women were the first to discover it, they were the first witnesses, itself points to the truthfulness of the account. Because if, you know, the the kind of running thought about how new religious movements uh, happen is you get some charismatic leader and everybody loves him and then he dies and then followers then try to build a movement around this person in order to, you know, build an organization in order to promote their, their power and influence within the 
the, the organization, within the entity, within the movement, and, and they would then make sure that then the scriptures and, and codes of that movement, the stories that they told would reflect very well on the movement's religious leaders. So you would expect Peter and, and, and James and John to look incredibly heroic and bold, strong leaders. Instead, we've got gospels that, well, I mean, Jesus did once tell Peter that he was Satan, and that doesn't really look good on a resume. I mean, would you want me to be your pastor if Jesus said that I was the devil? Um, you know, it's just, you, they would never have made this stuff up unless they really believed it was actually true. True truth, historically. Um, you know, it, it's all over the New Testament. It's not just the women discovering the body. It's not just, you know, Peter being called the devil. Uh, you know, Jesus calls his followers oligopistoi in Greek, which means little faith ones, or you have little faith. Jesus asks them, are you still unbelieving? Yeah, do you want an unbelieving religious leader? The Gospels accounts are littered with all of this unflattering information that makes the people who are supposed to be making themselves important religious leaders look, well, less than unflattering. They look like idiots very often. The apostles are sitting there selfishly arguing with each other over who gets to be the greatest in God's kingdom. I mean, uh, Peter denies Jesus Christ not once, not twice, but three times in public. You know, uh, Peter, James, and John abandon Jesus in his hour of need, and they can't even stay awake to pray for him. You know, these accounts were embarrassing for the early church. They made the early church's leaders look bad. They made the account of Jesus' resurrection look less than credible according to the, the standards of the day. If the Christians were making up a religion to advance their authority and to make themselves look like strong, trustworthy leaders, they would have written this whole thing incredibly differently. The resurrection would have been discovered by men, not by these women of which we know fairly little, and yet we can only conclude that by the 60s AD, the 60s of the Common Era, that the apostles, something had affected them such that they didn't mind looking like idiots so long as the truth was proclaimed. They didn't mind looking bad by the time the Gospels were done. And nothing in these Gospels could ever have gotten there were it not with the permission and support of the apostolic community. And yet the apostolic community itself said, go ahead, make us look like idiots. We don't care. Jesus is risen, and it's true. And so we're going to give you the truth, even if it makes us look bad, even if the pagans will mock us for it, even if our Jewish siblings will think we're Greeks. This is how it happened, and Jesus isn't dead. And I'm going to tell you who saw him first. It was Joanna and Mary Magdalene and the other Mary. You see, the problem for the early Christians of the resurrection was the problem of the witnesses, and yet that problem also shows us something about the nature of the work of Jesus among women and men today, that he is at work among equals, loving them all, calling all of us out into the mission of God to bring the welcome of Jesus to our hurting humanity, indeed to our hurting creation. And yet it also shows us historically that this history is strong. It's strong because it makes the people who wrote it look bad. It's a profound testimony to the truth that Jesus has risen. And consider to what these women testify. 
you know, they testify to the resurrection of Jesus, which was a, a massive divine inbreaking into human history. You know, it, the, the fact that Jesus rose means that the best for those who follow Jesus is yet to come. You know, St. Paul in Romans says, we shall be saved through Christ's life. The fact that, that, that Jesus died and we died with him because we're united to him if you're a follower of Jesus. That he died, but then the fact that he also rose, you were tied to him, spiritually united to him, and therefore if you have Jesus, you too will rise. Death will not be the last word. The Bible calls Jesus the first fruits of the harvest. You know, that means, for those of you who have a garden, I've just got a very small little container garden in my Central West End Terrace, and so it's like about this big. It's got six plants. But uh, for those of you who actually have real gardens and actually plant seeds, uh, and they grow, and then you see that first little bit of fruit come, teeny little whatever it is, and you know what's coming. You're going to have a whole lot of tomatoes, more than you know what to do with them. Because Jesus is the first fruits, and you're going to have a whole lot of resurrections. Why? Because the first one has already sprouted, planted into the ground, came back to life, and that's what's going to happen to everybody who has Jesus. You know, what's the trajectory of your life? You know, you start really little, you're cute, you come out of the womb, you wear some diapers, you fill some diapers, you replace some diapers, you eat a lot and eat a lot and sleep a lot and eat a lot and sleep at the wrong times and, and then you start gaining some skills you, you learn to recognize faces and smile when you see people smiling at you. You, you you learn skills like using words and putting them together into sentences and, and phonics and stuff like that and you learn language and you learn how to, to, to crawl and then how to cruise and then how to walk and then you have your first day of kindergarten and then you go through school and elementary school and middle school and high school and, and maybe if you're lucky, college, and maybe if you're not lucky, grad school and postdoc, and and um, and, and 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 then you keep progressing. You're 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 maybe dating, maybe you get married, maybe you get married again. You have children, and and they grow up, and then you have grandkids. And somewhere, at some point, I don't know where, but at some point, it happens. You crest the hill. I'm not looking at anybody in particular. But the progress stops. Things start to decline. Your hair starts getting thin. It starts needing lots more attention to not look bad. Uh, maybe it starts changing colors. You know, you get to the point where you can't get up out of your pew without vocalizing it. Ugh. You know, your body starts to lose its shape. You get less padding in the back, and the pew starts feeling way less comfortable than when you were little. You know, the shape and the very, you know, systems of your body start having problems and things start breaking down like the plumbing in a hundred-year-old gothic church building where you patch one thing and then springs a leak somewhere else and you patch that one and then something else breaks down and that's us more and more medical care more and more specialists more and more trips to medical doctors and clinics and hospitals and then eventually maybe you end up in assisted living and then in a nursing home and then you die and then you're either buried or you're cremated and put on an urn and then the next generation has to figure out what to do with your ashes. But if Jesus was dead and if he came back to life and he said he was the first fruits, the sign of what's to come, if Jesus rose, friends, then what that means is incredibly earth-shattering because it means at the moment at the end of your death 
end of your life is you succumb to giving up consciousness one more time, the best is yet to come. If Jesus rose for those who follow him, tied spiritually in union with him, then we still have all eternity. See, if a billion years from now, Jesus never really did rise, then a billion years from now, the stars will all be out, and we will all have been meaningless. No one will have ever known whether humanity ever existed. No act of love or justice or care or compassion will have had any significance at all because we will all cease to be and no one will ever know that we existed. But if Jesus did rise, then what we do in this life carries on into eternity. And every act of love, every act of justice, every act of compassion is not just something that feels right or feels wrong at the moment, but is something that is objectively good and righteous and true and pleasing to God. It means our longing for justice has significance. You know, when I look back at the atheism of my youth, I think there was a lot of naivete that I had. I was a very sharp kid, and atheists tend to be very intelligent people, but I wonder, looking back, was I just trying to look cool and edgy? Was I just trying to look like I was sophisticated or, or, or intelligent? You know, I hadn't really suffered much. I hadn't buried anyone yet. And now, I've been in this church since 1994, and almost everybody who was here when I got here is either, you know, looking at retirement or with Jesus. And when you've buried a lot of people, when you've seen souls that are so precious and so valuable and intrinsically good, but fallen, like all of us, but you see the image of God in them, and then you see death steal them from us, you know in your heart that it's wrong. It ought not be that way. And the Christian Bible is the only book I've got there that tells me that it is wrong and it wasn't meant to be. Death is an invader because humanity's relationship with God was broken and therefore death came upon us as a sentence. And yet the only hope I have is that Jesus was telling the truth and that he really did die and he really did come back to life. And because of that, he can do that for me as well. It's the only hope I have of seeing once again the people that I love who are no longer with us. I got a new phone a month or two ago. One of those neat ones that folds and becomes like a little tablet or a phablet with the nice big crease right down the middle of the screen, that one. And, uh, and it's really fascinating when you get a new phone because you go to, well, you go to Apple Store, you go to, to you know, the other one. and uh, And... The, the one that does Samsung products, which is the one that I actually happen to use. Um, and uh, it's amazing what they can do, because you can, like, literally, as your phone is dying and has, like, you know, one bar of power left, they can upload everything in your phone to the cloud. And then your phone dies. And then they can download it to a brand new phone that's a new and improved model that'll last forever. Uh, amazing. Uh, and if if Apple has figured out how to do this, I think God knows how to do this. If Samsung has figured out how to do this, I think 
God can figure out how to upload all of my data to the cloud and keep it nice and safe until it's time to download all that data into a new body. That's the resurrection. That's the Christian hope. And if Apple can do it, God can do it. The only assumption that would say it's not possible is if you rule out the very possibility that there is an intelligence behind the cosmos. If there is an intelligence, he can do with us what we do with our phones. It's the hope of the resurrection that we all share. The late British journalist Malcolm Mugridge, former communist turned Jesus follower, described before his death his hope that he found in the resurrection of Jesus. He writes, plenty of great teachers, mystics, martyrs, and saints have spoken words full of grace and truth. And in the case of Jesus alone, however, the belief has persisted that when he came into the world, God deigned to take on the likeness of a man. For myself, he writes, as I approach my end, I find Jesus' outrageous claim ever more captivating and meaningful. Quite often, waking up in the night as the old do, I feel myself to be half out of my body, hovering between life and death, with eternity rising in the distance. I see my ancient carcass prone between the sheets, stained and worn like a scrap of paper dropped in the gutter, and hovering over it myself like a butterfly, released from its chrysalis stage and ready to fly away. Are caterpillars told of their impending resurrection? How in dying they will be transformed from poor earth crawlers into creatures of the air with exquisitely painted wings? If told, would they believe it? I imagine the wise old caterpillars shaking their heads. No, no, it can't be. It's a fantasy. Yet, in the limbo between living and dying, as the night clocks tick remorselessly on, I hear those words of Jesus. I am the resurrection and the life, and I feel myself to be carried along on a great tide of joy and of peace. If you're tied to Jesus, if he's your savior, if you're following him and calling upon him to be the one that forgives all of your sins and brings you into the family of God and gives you eternal life, if you have Jesus, if you're tied to him, if you're united to him, if he's roped you into relationship with himself, then just as he was planted in the ground dead and came back to life, then the resurrection proclaims this Easter that you too will live forever. It was the Whitehaven Air Show in Cum Cumbria, Northern England, and Mike French and then Wayne Shorthouse jumped out of a plane. We've got a photo of that here. Could we get that slide? This is them literally right out of the plane on their way down. Uh, they were going to perform what's called a stack maneuver, which is uh, one of the more challenging uh, things that I would never in a million years, you could not pay me enough to do. But um, the worst nightmare of any professional parachutist is that when they pull the cord, the chute comes out tangled in a knot and unable to inflate. And as Mike, the first one on the left, as he pulled his cord, his parachute did not deploy. It came out in a, in a mess and remained uninflated. And he could feel his body hurling toward that earth 
faster and faster and faster. He was facing death. Thousands of feet below, but just seconds below. He was freaking out. And on the ground, spectators were looking up. They could see his arms and his legs flailing. They were recognizing that, that the, the chute was trailing behind him, uninflated. And as everybody watched, his life was passing through his mind. He could feel his shoulders. Then suddenly, as he's hurling toward the earth with no parachute, he felt his shoulders suddenly jerk upward. We've got a photo here of what happened. Because his friend Wayne, right behind him, waited to inflate his own parachute as he wound his legs around the ropes and cords of his friend's parachute. He was entangled with his friend, bound up with him, tied together by his cord. Some would call it a foolish attempt. These parachutes were not made to carry double the load. Wayne was risking his own possible death in order to try to save his friend's life. But they were falling too fast. Even with his parachute inflated, the two of them you know, were, were maneuvering as best they could, but they were going too fast, and so they tried to aim and maneuver their bodies to aim toward the water because land would be certain death. We've got another photo here of them heading toward the water. Even then, as they hit the water, they were going 15, 20, 25 miles per hour in, in the bay. And spectators gathered by the shore as they watched their bodies plunge straight into the water. And they watched. And nothing happened. And they waited. There was a hush over the crowd. No one wanted to say anything. In the background, you could hear a cry. But there was no sign of them. It was as if they had gone feet first into their watery grave together. Finally, spectators began to panic. Somebody's calling an ambulance. Would death devour them? Would this forever be their final resting place? Would this be their grave? And what seemed like an eternity passed. And then something broke the surface of the water. And out from below popped Wayne Shorthouse and Mike French tangled together in a mess of nylon and ropes, but perfectly healthy and alive. We've got a photo of the aftermath here. The reality is that Mike is the guy on the right, and Wayne on the left is his friend who risked his life to bind them together so that they would have the hope of both coming out of this disaster alive. Two lives tangled together in an unbreakable knot. Either we're both going to die together, going to our grave at once, or we're both going to come back out alive together, and we're both going to survive to tell everyone this story. Even if it kills me, he was saying, I've got your back, and I am not afraid to face death for my friend. Friends, and that is what Jesus did for you. That's what the cross was about, and that's what the resurrection was about. Jesus tying our lives to his so that having plunged into death, we will come out on the other side and rise again to eternal life with Jesus forever in the coming age. William Tyndale said this. He said, Christ is in thou, and thou in him, knit together inseparably. Thou canst not be damned unless Christ is damned with you. And Christ cannot be saved unless you are saved with him. Jesus.
to whom we've been united if we place our trust in him. Jesus who tangles our life together with his in a knot that can never be untied. Jesus, our risen son of God, risen so that we, tied to him forever, also will rise with the good news that Jesus is not dead. He is alive. Praise the Lord.